Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Politics with me, Amy Walter, on The Takeaway. It's good to be with you all today. As the 2020 campaign season kicks off, there's one phrase we've been hearing a lot from both declared and likely Democratic candidates for president. I'm a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bill. We need to have Medicare for All. Medicare for All bill. Medicare for All. Medicare for All. But what is Medicare for All? Hmm. How do you define it? You know, I don't know if I can because it means so many things to different people. That's Sarah Cliff. She's a health policy journalist for Vox. She studies this stuff more closely than almost anyone else. And if she can't define it, we're all in a little bit of trouble. So let's dig in. When politicians say Medicare Medicare for all, they usually don't literally mean expanding Medicare itself to include everyone. Because it really wouldn't work. Medicare is a government program that provides health care coverage to people over 65. So it doesn't cover things like pediatrics or maternity care, since seniors really don't need those things. Instead, Medicare for All has become sort of a shorthand for any plan that gives more Americans access to government-sponsored health care. And there are a lot of different plans that do that. Sarah Cliff spent about a month parsing through the major ones, congressional proposals, as well as proposals written up by major think tanks. Here's what she found. I split the plans into two groups, essentially. One is the thing we typically think of as Medicare for All, a government plan that covers everybody, no more private insurance, all of us move on to this public health insurance plan. Then you have this other category of plans that would be less of a transition. They wouldn't require everybody to move to a public program, but they would let us buy into public health insurance. So this is usually called a public option, a Medicare buy-in, a Medicaid buy-in. So these ones still leave employer-sponsored insurance standing, but they also give people the option to buy into a government plan. It's a much less significant change to the healthcare system, but still a decent shift from where we are now. Some potential Democratic candidates, like Bernie Sanders, strongly belong in the first category. He has proposed a bill that calls for ending private insurance entirely. Others, perhaps concerned about the fact that half of Americans get their health insurance through their employers and might not want to lose it, seem to be open to other types of plans as well. Elizabeth Warren, for example, signed on to Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill and onto one of those buy-in bills that Sarah Cliff mentioned. That would allow people who want to to keep their private insurance. Still, whether you are talking about moving everybody onto a government insurance plan or creating a government insurance plan that people can choose to buy into, either way, you're making some pretty big changes to our current healthcare system. So how much would these changes cost? So that's a place where I think Democrats still need to do a lot more analysis and work. What we do know is a plan like the one Senator Sanders has put forward, it would require a decent amount of tax revenue. The Congressional Budget Office, um, you know, our nonpartisan scorekeeper here in Washington hasn't scored it yet. But there are a few different scores floating around that suggest, you know, this would require raising a lot of revenue. That being said, all of us would stop paying premiums for health insurance. So while it would require a lot more spending on the part of the government, we would also no longer be spending on private insurance. A lot of the buy-in plans I mentioned, they don't expect to be that expensive because they essentially expect, you know, people who decided to buy into the public plan would pay premiums to get into the public plan, just like we pay premiums to our private plan. So that's another way that these two types of plans differ in terms of 
whether they require raising a lot of tax revenue or whether they expect new enrollees to essentially pay their way into the program. But is the theory behind all of these that healthcare is too expensive and this is a way to rein in healthcare costs? Or is this about we need to make sure everybody's covered and hopefully one benefit will be that costs come down because of the way that this the government can play such a big role in containing the cost. But that's not our top priority. It's a combination of both of those right now. And I think different legislators have different motivations in what they're doing. I think there's pretty widespread recognition among Democrats right now that the Affordable Care Act did not go as far as they would like, that if they could do it again, they would have made the deductible smaller, they would have made it more affordable health care. And so when I look at these attempts to expand public coverage, they seem like a, a desire to remedy that. And I think there's a split right now between the Sanders camp and the Medicare for All camp, which says that we need the government to run the entire system. We need the government to regulate prices. That is how we're going to get to affordable health care. And the other plans that say, you know, there's still a role for private insurance, that if we have a government player in the mix that's going to help bring down prices via competition, that's a big split, you know, in the party right now that I don't think they've really settled. And I think when I talk to folks on the Hill, when I talk to 2020 campaigns, you know, they see the next two years leading up to the election as a time when this policy debate is going to play out on the campaign trail and congressional hearings that they need to come to a consensus on what Medicare for All actually means. This whole time the Medicare for All debate has been unfolding, I've been thinking about the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. Democrats worked really hard to pass that legislation in 2010, and it really hurt them in the midterm elections that year. They lost the House. Then in 2014, they lost the Senate in part because of the unpopularity of Obamacare. Imagine in 2017, signing legislation repealing every word of Obamacare. No one has signed up for Obamacare, give or take 4.2 million people. Now, Obamacare is finally pretty popular. It has a 53% approval rating. So why abandon it now? Why not just fix the things that need fixing rather than throw the whole thing out and start from scratch. Sarah Cliff told me she totally gets where I'm coming from. That was a bruising time for Democrats. They got this law through, but they suffered a lot of electoral consequences. The rollout didn't go as they expected. If you had asked me to look in my crystal ball, I would have thought Democrats would be shying away from health care at this moment. But I think the fact that they are seem to be quite active on this issue, that it's going to be a key feature of the 2020 primary, kind of traces back to the repeal efforts where Republicans really launched this full-on attack on the Affordable Care Act. And that seemed to get Democrats thinking, you know, the Affordable Care Act was our compromise option. It was the thing we hoped to get Republican support for. So we put in these private marketplaces. If we're never going to get the Republicans to support health care ideas, we should just go for the thing we actually want. And the thing we actually want is a more single-payer Canadian or European-style system. So I think there was a bit of an awakening in the Democratic Party over the past few years where they realized Republicans are never going to get on board with the Affordable Care Act. So why not go for a system that isn't an attempt at compromise, that looks a lot more like other industrialized nations? Wasn't there a debate during the 2009-2010 Obamacare time over whether to include a public option, right? Whether to basically have mm-hmm. a Medicare buy-in. And why why was that unsuccessful then? And why would it be more successful now? 
So this was a robust part of the debate. It was something that um, the House really wanted and pushed for was a public government run option that could compete on the private marketplaces and hopefully drive down prices, you know, for all Americans. And it essentially had to be lost as the bill got a little more centrist through its different iterations, through its path through the Senate. And you just couldn't get enough support for the buy-in option in the Senate. So it was eventually dropped, um, you know, as they moved towards finding something that could get 60 senators on board. You know, would it be more possible right now? One of the things I wonder about, and I don't really know, is how committed Democrats feel like they are to having industry buy-in. The Obama administration felt like it was crucial to get doctors and drug makers and insurers on board with the health care plan. They had seen how big health care interests could sink um, a health care reform package with Clinton care back in the 90s. So they felt like if we're going to get anywhere, we need to have all these players on board. I don't know if Democrats feel that way or not. Republicans got awfully close to repealing the Affordable Care Act, despite, you know, most of the health industry lining up against them. And so I don't know if Democrats are taking a lesson from that saying, you know, maybe we don't need these allies because what you're going to see if they do pursue a public option, if they pursue Medicare for all, the insurance industry is not going to be thrilled at that. And they will near certainly oppose those efforts. So I think that's an open question of how do Democrats maneuver that particular space? You know, not only did they learn some lessons, perhaps from the repeal fight, but also the party has taken a much harder line, the Democratic Party harder line on sort of corporatist influences within the party, showing your allegiance and alliance with a bill that the industry likes is considered now a liability rather than something that is, you know, good, good policy. That's totally right. I think it's an interesting question of, you know, the insurance industry, the drug industry in particular, has a lot of money. They do a lot of lobbying. And I don't know how those two forces run into each other at this exact moment. If Democrats feel like we can overcome the insurance industry, most people aren't big fans of the insurance industry, we can weather their advertising against us. Or if there still is that hesitation, thinking that we can't weather those sorts of attacks and the amount of money they would spend, you know, campaigning against a bill like this one. I'm old enough to remember the fight over healthcare in the 90s where the health insurance industry was very influential mm-hmm. with these so-called Harry and Louise ads. But this was covered under our old plan. Oh, yeah, that was a good one, wasn't it? Where they're raising questions about the health care plan that Democrats were then pushing through, saying, you're going to lose your health care. This is going to be terrible. Government's going to take it over. Having choices we don't like is no choice at all. Yeah, they choose. We lose. I'm wondering if that may be a factor as well, is there are very few Democrats in Congress right now who were around in the 90s. Yeah, that's a good point. Because I think, you know, when I followed the Obamacare debate, those Harry and Louise ads would come up all the time. And they seem to like, like, there's a little bit of PTSD in like the health policy liberal circles around having those kind of ads. And then, you know, you have folks like, like newcomers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, you know, might say, screw it, I'm not scared of the insurance industry. Like, I am ready to give this another try. But I think you're right. We're talking, uh, you know, at this point of you know, 20 years passing since those ads ran, maybe they'll be a little bit less salient than they were during the Affordable Care Act debate. Do you think there is ultimately going to be some sort of consensus around what a final Medicare for all bill would look like? Or do you think that ultimately there will just be these multiple bills floating around and candidates and campaigns are going to have to take sides? 
So I don't think we'll have a consensus by the end of this election. What I'd expect is to see candidates kind of carving out their own niche. And then I think if, you know, a Democrat does win the White House in 2020, one of the things that's really crucial is whether they decide to make health care a priority, you know, not just what their policy is, but whether they decide, OK, this is the thing that I'm going to make a really big push for. So I think we end 2020 with a better understanding of how these plans work, how much they would cost, who would gain insurance. I don't think we end the election with a clear consensus of, among Democrats of, OK, this is the plan that we're all lining up behind. Sarah Cliff, thank you so much for coming and helping to explain all of this. Thank you for having me. Medicare currently provides health insurance for about 58 million Americans. It's a federal program for people 65 and older and some younger people with disabilities. And it covers not all of their health care costs, but a lot. In this era of bitter partisan divisions, starting a huge program like this seems impossible. So how did it start? I asked Julian Zelizer, a history professor at Princeton and the author, most recently, of Fault Lines. Basically, in the 1950s, liberals realized they weren't going to get national health insurance. Harry Truman had tried it in 1945 and 1949. Both times, it had gone down uh, to defeat the American Medical Association put on a massive lobby and killed the idea. So liberals said, let's try something different. And instead, we'll just focus on older people, people 65 or over. We'll put it in the social security system, which is popular. And they are seen as a deserving uh, population. People felt bad that elderly people didn't have access to health care. They couldn't go to the hospital and pay for it. So liberals pushed for the program. John F. Kennedy picks it up as one of his main themes in 1961 and 62. The fact of the matter is that what we are now talking about doing, most of the countries of Europe did years ago. He really campaigns and lobbies hard, but it gets attacked. Uh, the American Medical Association calls it socialized medicine. They warn it's going to bankrupt the country, uh, bankrupt taxpayers. Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, takes over as president once Kennedy is killed, and he pushes for it as well. And by 1965, everything falls into place, and we get the passage of Medicare, and then all of a sudden, health care for the elderly has been transformed. Was the bill that ultimately passed a bipartisan bill, or is this one that was really driven by Democrats and passed by Democrats? Well, initially, it was driven by liberal Democrats. It's primarily northern Democrats. There were some liberal Republicans from the northeast but many Republicans opposed it. They said this was socialized medicine. Barry Goldwater, who runs in 1964, he's a big opponent of uh, Medicare. And Lyndon Johnson, when they're running against each other in 64, puts ads to remind voters that Goldwater consistently voted against the bill. Senator Goldwater flew across the continent twice, almost 6,000 miles, to vote against a program of hospital insurance for older Americans as did many Southern Democrats, who were the other part of the opposition. But what happens is after the 1964 election, Democrats have massive uh, majorities in the House and Senate, and many Republicans don't want to look like Barry Goldwater. So by January of 65, Republicans are proposing their own bill. And the final Medicare bill includes their idea, the Democratic idea, all wrapped up in a big three-layer cake, as it was called. 
And what did the public think about Medicare? The public gradually supported it. Once the bill is in effect and once the program is in effect, it becomes a very popular program by the 1970s and not just popular with one party. There were many Republican voters and Republican politicians by the 70s are not really focused on dismantling it or anything, and they're happy to have it. And not only is it bipartisan, the medical industry, even though they originally proposed it, within 10 years, they're delighted to have this because it's bringing people into the healthcare system. So that they um, originally opposed it. Yeah, they called it socialized medicine. And the AMA had even uh, recruited people like Ronald Reagan, who recorded a record that said national health care, even Medicare, is an opening wedge to socialism in the United States. We can write to our congressmen, to our senators. We can say right now that we want no further encroachment on these individual liberties and freedoms. And at the moment, the key issue is we do not want socialized medicine. Well, here we are all these years later, and we're still hearing the term socialized medicine to describe Democratic plans for a Medicare for all system. The president even in his State of the Union address alluded to the fact that he was going to stand up against creeping socialism in this country. Does it have the same resonance today as it did in the 1940s, 50s, 60s? Uh, You would think it's changed. We're no longer in a Cold War. So uh, when they call the program socialized medicine in the 40s, 50s or 60s, It was in the context of this battle with the Soviet Union, a big ideological division that separated the United States from other parts of the world. That's all over. But it has been used still. It was used against Bill Clinton. It was used against President Obama. And it will be used again today. The question is, for younger people, it probably doesn't mean much. But for older voters who matter politically only in that they vote more and they're organized more, it might still resonate because that's a generation that grew up when socialized medicine was something they feared. And the other issue, too, as you've noted, was that this was a deserving group of people, Mm -hmm. these seniors, and that the message today, at least that Democrats are pushing, is that healthcare is a right. There's nobody who's deserving or undeserving. Yeah. Today, the, the proponents of Medicare for all are going back to the battles of the 1940s and 50s, really, in that they want everyone to be covered. They want a program where no one will lack access to health care and where the government will have a stronger hand in making sure that the system works better. That's a harder argument. It's a bigger haul than picking a certain group, uh, as we saw with Medicare, to say everyone deserves health care always is more politically explosive because opponents say not everyone deserves a government benefit. Julian Zelizer, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. In the midst of a conversation about universal health care, I'd be remiss not to mention the late Congressman John Dingell, who died at his home in Michigan on Thursday at the age of 92. Congressman Dingell was many things. At 59 years and 21 days, he was the longest-serving member of Congress, a diehard ally of the auto industry, and a stalwart advocate for universal health care coverage, a cause he carried on from his father, whose seat he won in a special election after his death in 1955. In that role, at the start of every new Congress, Representative Dingell introduced a bill to establish a national health insurance system. In 1965, when the House voted to pass Medicare, then-Speaker John McCormick gave the gavel to Dingell, who presided over its passage. 
And while he continued in each Congress to fight for health care to cover every American, his legislation never passed in full. Still, pieces of that original bill have found their way into current law. Here's John Dingell reflecting on those efforts in a 2009 interview with NPR. As I have revised the bill over the years, we found that about half of the original piece of legislation has been enacted into law. Things like the establishment of the National Institutes of Health, universal vaccine programs, as well as programs covering maternal and children's health. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama in 2014. And at that ceremony, he described what drove him and his work for nearly 60 years in Congress. This job belongs to the people. And it's supposed to be done in the best way we can. It is a job that is supposed to literally keep us up so that we do not do less than that which the people expect. Farewell and Godspeed, John Dingell. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Medicare was signed into law in 1965. Let's fast forward 50 years now to a rally in Washington, D.C., celebrating the program's half-century anniversary. The time has come to say that Medicare is an excellent program for senior citizens in this country. But the time has come also to say that we need to expand Medicare to cover every man, woman, and child as a single-payer national health care program. That senator, of course, was Bernie Sanders. And back in 2015, this idea of creating a federal program funded by taxes through which the federal government would insure everyone was not very popular. Sanders wasn't able to find a single co-sponsor for his bill. But now, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill is supported by at least 16 Democratic senators. And this summer, a large group of Democrats in the House of Representatives formed a Medicare for All caucus co-chaired by Pramila Jayapal from Washington. Here she is speaking in support of the plan in Congress. Today, we are united as Democrats in protecting the ACA, making it clear that we stand with millions of Americans who are at risk of losing coverage. But I am also determined to put forward a bold new vision for Medicare for All, something that the majority of all Americans support. As members of Congress, we're ready to listen to them and put people over profits. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Since Republicans are in control of the Senate, it's pretty much impossible for a Medicare for All bill to pass now. But its reintroduction is a symbolic move by the Democrats to show that this is an issue that matters to them, and one that will probably be discussed throughout the 2020 election season. Here is Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling for exactly that conversation on Meet the Press Daily earlier this week. I reject the idea that single-payer is impossible. I reject the idea that universal health care is impossible. All of these things are possible. When we talk about what I want in a 2020 candidate, I want a 2020 candidate that 
says we can do these things. We can be audacious. Some Democratic strategists worry, however, that by uncompromisingly throwing their support behind Medicare for all, Democratic presidential candidates might end up alienating swing voters during the general election. One such strategist is James Carville, who worked as an advisor to Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign and Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign. We're just leaving ourselves open. A single payer, and I know the way this is going to get regurgitated as it goes through. You don't need that, okay? You need to say we're going to expand coverage. We can have a, a, a public option. We can have Medicare buy-in 55. We certainly need more progressivity in our tax code. We certainly need a broader base. About, I think capital gains ought to be taxed as income. You can be a Democrat. You can even be a pretty damn liberal Democrat, and the country is going to be with you. But once you go off into something that you don't know anything about, and you and you allow yourself to get into an auction. So, well, you want Medicare for all? Okay, good. I'll raise that with a federal job guarantee. Well, good. I'll raise that with a free college education. It's like these people can't control themselves. And there is no need for it. People with that won elections out there, they were running as Democrats. Doug Jones was pro-choice. They were run, they ran as Democrats. They didn't... In Alabama. In Doug Alabama. Jones. Yes. Connor Lamb was pro-choice. He, he said, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but, well, okay, that's, that's everybody's riff. You've been through the health care wars. The mover, Is there any way to win sure, on this issue? Sure. How do you do this? They're winning right now. We won big. We won big in 2018. And healthcare drove the... Because in healthcare, the mover loses. So Obama lost because he moved. Then they lost because they moved, right? You're going to go tell an Alameda County fireman that you don't have your negotiated health care package. You're now on Medicare. And, by the way, <laughs> part of the deal is you have to pay 30% more in taxes. But don't worry, you, you will gain money over your lifetime. I mean, please, how stupid can people be? And someone with the plan the Raging Cajun can probably get behind? My name is Neera Tandon. I'm president of the Center for American Progress. She thinks the focus of this debate for Democrats should really be about universal health care. I think every 2020 Democrat is, is talking about universal health care. And uh, many of them, uh, including Senator Warren and Senator Gillibrand, are talking about the different ways to get there. But I think it is a... It is a long-held view within the Democratic Party and amongst progressives that health care should be a right for all Americans. And part of the energy of that is that I think people are proud of the Affordable Care Act and what it did, but it remains true today that there are people who don't have health care, and, and the United States is rare in the world uh, and definitely rare amongst developed countries in not providing every American health care. Whether you're calling it Medicare for All, we're going to walk through some of the other names of other plans that are out there. Is this something of a litmus test issue for voters, you think, in 2020? I, I do not believe that it is a litmus test. And I, in fact, think that the last couple of weeks have demonstrated that it is not a litmus test that people support, that the presidential candidates support Medicare for All. I think it is a core value of Democrats that everyone have health care. So I believe universal health care is, if you want to use the term litmus test, a litmus test. But I don't think there. I don't think people uh, are demanding uh, one path and only one path to get there. 
Which leads us to the path that you all are taking at Mm -hmm. the Center for American Progress. You have a proposal called Medicare Extra for All. Can you describe what that is? It uh, essentially provides more benefits in the Medicare program, but builds on the Medicare program. So dental benefits, more primary care benefits, uh, but essentially it really allows individuals to choose whether they want to keep their current health care in the employer-based system or go into this new Medicare program. Why do you see that as a better option than, say, the Bernie Sanders model, which says we're going to have one system, there's no private insurance, everybody's in the same government-run plan? Countries around the world, uh, all of our competitors have universal health care. But Countries vary in what path they have. So there are countries that only allow single payer, meaning that the government buys health care for everyone uh, and is the provider of health care for everyone. But there are countries that allow private insurance to continue. Uh, Germany has an all-payer rate saving system, which uh, essentially continues not-for-profit private insurance. And so our belief was that in a, in a country in which 70% of Americans who have employer-sponsored coverage like their plan, that the system of getting to universal coverage should uh, address that, that it's that people there are people who want to keep the plans they've bargained for or negotiated for with their employers and that they should have that choice. And so that's why we developed a plan, which, again, gets to universal coverage. Every American is covered, but allows people the decision-making power to keep the plan that they have or to join the Medicare plan. Is a health care for all plan that does not allow a private insurance a political liability for Democrats in 2020? It's not for me to say whether something is dangerous or problematic. I just think it's really important for Democrats to have a full view of a range of options. And truly, it is wrong to say that you have to have a single-payer system to get to universal health care. And in fact, most countries in the world have universal health care systems that are not single-payer based. I think this is what primaries are for. You have a robust debate. And just like I believe that Medicare Extra for All should be part of that debate, I believe single payers should be part of that debate. I think a Medicare buy-in or an op- just a pure option without universal coverage should be part of that debate. Some people are advocating a Medicare buy-in for people 50 years old and older. All of these ideas should be debated in the Democratic primary. And uh, what I resist is an argument that really there's only one way to move forward on health care in that single payer. Neera Tandon, thank you for joining me. Always a pleasure. Okay, so we understand that Medicare for All means different things to different people. Neera Tandon just described the policy that the Center for American Progress drafted. It essentially would let people keep their employer-sponsored health care or private insurance if they like it, but it also offers some sort of public buy-in option for people who want that. But what about folks on the other side of the aisle? We know repeal and replace didn't work, so what's the solution Republicans see going forward? I called up Ovik Roy. He's president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, a conservative think tank. And for starters, he's got a beef with how people understand the terms we use when talking about health care for all. People equate the terms universal coverage with single payer, as if 
the only way to ensure that every American has health insurance is for the government to be the only health insurance company, if you will. And that's not true. If you look at Europe, there are a lot of different models out there. There are countries like the UK where there is effectively only one insurer, the government. So that's a system that a lot of people on the left favor. But there are also ways to achieve universal coverage that involve universal private insurance. So, for example, Switzerland is a country that has a system in which there's no public option, there's no Medicare, there's no Medicaid. There are only private insurers delivering coverage to the Swiss population. And financial assistance is delivered to lower-income Swiss citizens to pay for their premiums or help them pay for their premiums in a way that ensures that everyone in Switzerland has health insurance. Well, that leads us then to the debate we had in 2017 over repealing Obamacare. And there were many of those arguments made, right? That this is too much government intervention. We need the private sector to play a larger role. That's that individual Americans should have more say in their health care decisions. And not only did the bill fail to, to pass the Senate, but Republicans' loss of 40 seats in the House was driven in large part by their decision to try to repeal Obamacare and specifically a very popular option in Obamacare, which is the coverage for pre-existing conditions. So how do you square those debates? At my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, our mission, our focus is how to find policy solutions that advance both conservative and progressive values at the same time. And healthcare is a perfect example. Our healthcare system in America is so messed up that you can advance conservative values, meaning less federal spending, less government intrusion, but also the progressive value of making sure that everybody has health insurance. Because again, in countries like Switzerland, everyone has health insurance, but the federal government and the system in general spends a lot less money than we as Americans do. And this was the mistake, going back to your question, that Republicans made. If more people had health insurance, that meant that uh, more government had to be involved. And that's not in fact the case. You can actually have less government involvement, less federal spending, and more people with health insurance if you actually work hard to make health care and health insurance less expensive than it is today. Well, that's the pushback from Democrats would be the whole way to make this affordable, though, flies in the face of private insurance, right? Their job is to make money. And if your job is to make money, you can't do that by basically making this as inexpensive as possible for everybody, that if there's a profit to be made, somebody's going to have to be paying for that. So that's a misunderstanding of how a a real health insurance market would would work. So in in a real health insurance market, the various health insurance companies are competing with each other to offer the lowest premium, the lowest cost for a given set of insurance benefits. That's how for example, Medicare Part D works. And that's how insurance markets could work if we allowed them to. The problem is, because of 75 years of things that Congress and the federal government have done to distort those incentives, we don't have that kind of system in America. We have a system where, for a large number of people, for people, for example, get insurance from their employer, you're right, that the insurance company only makes more money if the premiums are more expensive. That's how the employer-based system works today. But in a true individual market where insurers are competing for an individual's business, insurers have incentive to compete on premiums. And that's the kind of system we have to move more towards. And that's the kind of system I I want Republicans and conservatives to embrace because that's how you get to universal coverage in a market-based way. 
How proactive do you think Republicans and the president need to be in presenting their own version of a health care plan? Yeah, so th- there is a, uh, a temptation, a very strong temptation among Republicans to say, well, we know that single payer is unpopular in America or will be once we make the appropriate counter arguments against it because people who have private insurance won't want their private insurance taken away. Uh, and, and so there's this there's this tendency or this temptation among Republicans to just kick up their heels and say, you know what, we don't have to do anything on health care because uh, when, when the Democratic presidential candidate runs on single payer, we can just show how bad that is and uh, and go back to the status quo. And that, to me, would be a catastrophic mistake, because we're at a point now that healthcare has gotten so expensive in America that the average family's share of national health spending is far, far more than what the average family spends in taxes uh, to the, both the federal government and the local governments. So to the degree that Republicans care about cutting taxes, the scale and the growth of uh, healthcare spending is effectively a much larger problem for the average household than uh, that family's uh, the taxes that that family pays. So it's an incredibly important problem, and pay- average people are so impatient and frustrated with the growth of healthcare spending that there will come a point where they say, you know what, um, I may not like single payer, but single payer is better than nothing, which is uh, better than the status quo. And so Republicans do need to have an agenda. And I think this is, again, where the Trump administration has been ahead of congressional Republicans, in the sense the Trump administration has had a proactive agenda on lowering health care costs, particularly when it comes to prescription drugs. And I think what's going to be interesting to see as we head into 2020 is, does the Trump administration expand its thinking to make the case for a broader agenda on lowering health care costs and ensuring that every American has access to affordable health insurance. That's what I'm interested to see. And certainly in terms of my think tank work, we're trying to develop the ideas that can help achieve that. Ovik Roy, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be with you. Ovik Roy is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Medicare for all, while it's an appealing idea for most Americans, for a majority, you can't take that one finding in isolation. That's Dr. Molly Ann Brody. I'm the executive director of the Public Opinion and Survey Research Group at the Kaiser Family Foundation. KFF has been tracking public opinion on the idea of a national health plan for more than 20 years. And according to their data, support has ticked up a bit, particularly since 2016. So we ask people, do you favor or oppose having a national health plan, sometimes called Medicare for All, in which all Americans would get their insurance from a single government plan? And as you could imagine, um, depending on how you ask the question, you could get different answers. But what we find with that question is a 56% favor that idea. And then you start asking more detailed questions about some of the parts of Medicare for All? Well, right. So we do two things from that starting point. On the one hand, we ask about some more of the incremental expansions of government programs, things like allowing people 50 to 64 to buy into Medicare or people who don't have insurance to buy into Medicaid or an optional Medicare buy-in. And when we ask those sorts of questions, we get support closer to the three-quarters level. And even in the two cases of Medicare buy-in and Medicaid buy-in, two-thirds of Republicans support that. 
The other thing we do once we do the main question is we ask a variety of questions that are framed in terms of arguments that supporters and opponents would say about a Medicare for All program. And when we ask those, we see net favorability change from a high of plus 45 to a low of minus 45. So honestly, really what information you give people or what arguments you use really impacts the level of support or opposition I can measure. Is there one plan that Democrats and Republicans do mostly agree on, a way to get to health insurance as a right for Americans and make it less costly? We know that people of all partisan identities care a lot about reducing costs, about controlling the cost of their prescription drugs, about surprise medical bills. They um, support the idea of universal coverage, but trying to come up with a national health plan that can do all of those things has always been a challenge. You know, we can go back to President Clinton, we can go back to President Truman, we can go back to the debates over the ACA, and you um, you saw the partisanship that immediately developed in the context of those plans. So I think starting with where people, in the first case, how they react to these ideas versus what would happen in the course of a public debate, you really have to have two separate conversations about that. Have you asked the question of Americans whether they would like to see the current system fixed versus going into something that's a new system called Medicare for All? At this point in time, it doesn't top the priority list um, for most Dems or for most partisans. So, in fact, when we asked people what they wanted to see from Congress this year in terms of health, um, they're much more likely to say lowering the cost of prescription drugs, making ACA protections for pre-existing conditions continue, or protecting people from surprise medical bills. And, in fact, we did ask a question only of Democrats, and we said, what do you want the House Democrats to focus on? And we gave them only two choices, improving and protecting the ACA or passing a national Medicare for all plan. And at this point in time, 51 percent of Democrats said that they would prefer that their um, Democratic congressional delegation was working to protect the ACA. Thirty eight percent said that they um, would prefer if they were working to pass a Medicare for all plan. Mm. So I think that sheds light on the divisions within the Democratic Party at the moment when it comes to this issue. While it's an appealing issue to Democrats across the board, when it comes to being a priority for policy action, many Democrats, in fact, a majority of them, don't think it should be the priority right now. Do Democrats then risk going for this big new plan and failing rather than trying to find fixes for the things that people are the most concerned about, as you said, drug prices, pre-existing conditions, that even some Republicans have said they also want to find a fix for. You know, I think that the Democratic leaders are really walking a fine line right now in terms of talking about things that appeal to all parts of their constituency. I do think that one of the big challenges is here here is something I said at the beginning, but we haven't 
we didn't unpack a little bit, and this is this idea that most people think that they'd be able to keep their current health arrangements under a Medicare for All plan. And we know that this, you know, sort of harks back to the earlier health reform debates, that people get very risk adverse when they're told that they have to change what they're used to. In fact, you know, there's that political science concept called reversion to the status quo. And I think it perfectly captures the challenge that's facing the Medicare for All supporters right now. So moving people off a status quo, even when it might be subpar, to an alternative is a really, really, really tough thing to do. Democrats who are running for office and Democrats who are leading the party right now are really, you know, trying to navigate this environment where healthcare is definitely an appealing conversation. There are a lot of things within healthcare to talk about to appeal to constituencies. There is a, a question as you lead into 2020 what the role of this Medicare for All discussion will be. Will it be a litmus test? Will it just be a, you know, a mechanism to help enthusiasm, particularly among the you know, most progressive wing of the party? But to what extent do they start making people who support the idea get concerned about it really becoming policy is a, is a really you know, tenuous line to walk because as we saw, as soon as you start talking about, you know, whether there'd be long wait lines or whether you, you know, would have to give up your employer-sponsored insurance, you know, we saw support fall dramatically, even among Democrats. Again, it suggests that we're at an early stage of this conversation and that it would behoove Democrats to not forget about a variety of these other healthcare issues that are really on people's minds. Dr. Molly Ann Brody, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Dr. Molly Ann Brody is the Executive Director of Public Opinion and Survey Research at the Kaiser Family Foundation. The debate over government's role in healthcare has been a long-standing staple of American politics. And while I'm no expert on healthcare policy, I have watched the issue play out politically for many years. The bigger the proposed change to the current system, the bigger the political backlash. There are few issues more emotionally related than healthcare which makes the issue easy to grab people's attention, but also easy to demagogue in political ads. Today, Medicare for All is a catch-all phrase. The 2020 primary campaign gives Democrats the opportunity to shape it into something more substantive. Will Democratic primary voters want an incremental plan, like a Medicare buy-in, or do they want to see something more uncompromising, like a single-payer system? But this Democratic debate will also open the opportunity for Republicans to begin to define it, too. Which side does the better job of selling their definition of it is going to be a critical piece of the 2020 campaign. That's all for us today. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.